I thought for our promise for the day, <clears throat> I would take our promise that's in the faith checkbook for today. And it's found over in Daniel chapter 11, verse 32. We've been through this chapter, of course. But look at verse 32. And look at the bottom, Daniel chapter 11, verse 32, part B of the second part of the verse, the bottom of the verse. Um, it says, but the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Uh, God has promised us strength and grace for the battle. And of course, uh, as David, uh, the battle is the Lord's, as David said before Goliath. And uh, something that you don't see much today in our circles is really contending for the faith. Uh, Jude said that uh, I meant to write of the common salvation. And how, how lovely this great doctrine of redemption and salvation is. Something we need to be writing about all the time, do we not? But Jude said, you know, I wanted to write and, and, uh, and be positive and write about this wonderful doctrine of salvation, this, doc, uh, this doctrine of redemption that we have. But I found that it was necessary to stop and contend for the faith. That means to, to defend the faith. You know, we've got a lot of uh, what we call liberals and modernists that are attacking the Word of God today. And the big threat today is not so much uh, denying that the Word of God exists. They like to explain everything away and put a bad interpretation on everything. And uh, no, we've got, to, we've got to stand for the faith. Some people say, oh, you should never be negative. Let's just be, let's just be positive all the time. And if we just assert positive doctrine and, uh, and love enough and slobber enough, then uh, all of our problems will go away. You ever, you ever meet people like that? You just want to think the best of everything, you know? All those people, uh, no, we, sometimes we've got to stand up for the faith. I know one fellow got very upset because a pastor started naming names of false teachers and false prophets, you know, and so on. And all we, well, we need to be positive. We shouldn't be naming names. Well, did Paul name names? In First and Second Timothy, he named about 10, 12 names of false teachers and so on. Uh, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. Uh, Philetus and Alexander, uh, these men denied the resurrection and things like that. Uh, do you remember when uh, Paul got upset with Peter and confronted him went to his face? You remember Peter was, uh, he was uh, eating with these Gentiles, fellowshipping with the Gentiles. Then when these Judaizers came up from Jerusalem, he quit eating with the Gentiles. And they started going back and conforming to those old dietary laws under the Mosaic Code. And Paul got very upset with him. And he says, and confronted him to his face. Because what Peter was doing, he was saying, you've got to, and by, he didn't use the words, but by his behavior, he's saying, you've got to practice that Old Testament law in order to be saved. Now what those Judaizers were doing, Yes, you've got to put your faith in Christ, but you've got to keep that law as well. And so Paul, uh, so Peter was called as sending some mixed messages, causing confusion. Basically saying, in effect, by his behavior, yeah, you've got to keep that Old Testament law to be saved. And Paul got very upset with him. And Paul wrote a book called the book of Galatians. And in chapter 2 of Galatians, he mentioned how Brother, when he sent that uh, epistle among the churches in Galatia, he mentioned Brother Peter for compromise, didn't he? There in Galatians 2.14 that even Peter was carried away and uh, sometimes it's necessary to name names even a good Christian brother who are compromising 
And uh, so the whole idea was that uh, so Peter would be embarrassed and rebuked and wouldn't, be, uh, wouldn't compromise the gospel anymore. Well, anyhow, <laughs> uh, the, what I'm giving you here, this handout, is the, uh, when I taught, I taught a course called the History of Fundamentalism. And uh, these are 20, uh, back in the 1920s, the Northern Baptist Convention was going very liberal. And the liberals got control of the, uh, the uh, executive machinery in the convention. So some of the conservatives that still believed in the inerrancy of scripture and the deity of Christ and the great doctrines of the Bible decided to fight these liberals and tried to drive them out of the convention and get control of the convention once again. Well, that, they failed to do that. The only effective protest is to, uh, is to, is to is your, with your feet. You just got to walk out and separate. You're not going to get these conventions back from these liberals. And uh, well, anyhow, that's what this is all about. And so during those battles during the 1920s between the, the fundamentalists, as they called them, and the liberals, uh, we, we learned some, I think, some very valuable lessons. In our study of prophecy, I'm trying to get to the book of the Revelation. And uh, there's some major uh, prophetic passages in the Word of God I'd like to just sort of touch on, introduce you to them, sort of in preparation for the study of the book of the Revelation. And we looked at uh, the two most important the two most important Old Testament books uh, that have influenced the book of the Revelation is Ezekiel. We saw that last week, uh, 36, 37, 38, and 39. And then uh, verses or chapters 40 through 48 in Ezekiel is the Millennial Temple. Isn't that fascinating how God gives us eight chapters on that temple that's going to be in existence during the millennium? And gives us uh, about uh, six or seven verses on one of the, uh, maybe the most important passage in the Old Testament on prophecy, Daniel's 70 weeks. Why would God give eight chapters to a detailed description of the millennium or, or the temple in the millennium and uh, so few passages on, on that great important passage on uh, Daniel's 70 weeks? And if you looked at that great prayer of Daniel, that great prayer took up most of the chapter and just a few verses at the end dealing with the great prophecy chapter. Uh, what's the word of, what's the word of, what's the, I think it's important to what the word of God gives emphasis to. And uh, God gives greater emphasis to the prayer life of Daniel seemingly than some of those prophetic passages. And certainly a greater emphasis, eight whole chapters are given to uh, the millennial temple. And actually, to be honest with you, it's sort of quite tedious reading all, all these statistics and details and measurements of the temple and things like that. And, uh, you know, God has a different set of priorities than we do, doesn't he? What did, uh, what, uh, did, God, what did the Lord Jesus Christ tell Martha? That uh, Mary was doing the one thing needful. It was wonderful that Martha was uh, hustling about and working hard, getting that uh, wonderful meal prepared and and the Word of God says, but Mary also sat. Now, read the Word of God very carefully. I think Mary worked and did her part in preparation for the meal, but she wanted to sit at Jesus' feet and hear Him. Read the Word of God very carefully. It, uh, it says she also sat. It means she worked, I think, and then when she did her duty and did her part, then she sat to hear the Lord Jesus teach. The, the, you know, the only one, there's only one thing needful. And that's that you and I pray and meditate in the scriptures and be right with the Lord. That, that millennial temple was where uh, the God's people are going to be worshiping during the millennium. Uh, knowing God and loving God and praying 
to God and meeting with God. My personal relationship with Christ is just one thing needful. When I'm right with him, then all these other things find their proper place, do they not? That's what it's saying there. All right. Let's come, come over to, to uh, Psalm 110. Did you know that this little psalm is quoted more than any other passage in all the Old Testament over in the New Testament? Thirty sometimes this psalm is quoted in the New Testament more than any other single Old Testament book. This little short psalm is quoted in the New Testament. And uh, it's, uh, it's a fascinating, it's called a messianic psalm or a royal psalm. And when you see a messianic psalm, it means it's basically uh, a prophecy about Christ and the work of Christ. And uh, so it's called royal or messianic. And they always have to, they're always written against the background of the Davidic covenant. Remember, we talked about the Abrahamic covenant now being the single most important event in the Old Testament. You remember this? Do you remember there's three, three sub-covenants uh, uh, sub under the Abrahamic covenant? Anybody remember what those three sub-covenants? They're sort of the logic that they come out of the Abrahamic covenant. Do I remember what they were or any one of them? There's three sub-covenants that come out of the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant now in the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Remember, the Abrahamic covenant is kind of the foundation of all the word of God. And the new covenant is the fulfilling now of the Abrahamic covenant. But do you remember there's three sub-covenants? The land covenant. It's also called the Palestinian covenant. The land covenant. God promised the land. You remember there in uh, Genesis uh, 15, uh, Abraham said, Lord, what, how, how do I know for sure that you're going to, how, how are you going to guarantee that I'm going to get the, so that whole thing was about the land, wasn't it? And he said, now God, uh, give me a, a, a sign that uh, I'm going to inherit that land. It wasn't, uh, the, the, it wasn't about anything else in one sense. What did God do to prove, to promise, to, to promise Abraham, or Abraham that he would receive the land? Remember where they took the animals, the three animals, cut them in half, and then shed the blood of those animals? The whole idea was to, to kill those animals and shed their blood. And so that shedding of the blood made that uh, promise of God legally binding in one sense. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ there in Matthew talked about the cup and the blood and the cup were the covenant. And so when the blood was shed by Christ on Calvary, it made his promise of salvation in one sense legally binding. The blood, the shed blood, makes the covenant, the promise, legally binding. And so that's what, the, but that land, yes, the Palestinian covenant, uh, the land covenant, promised there in Deuteronomy, in fact, is promised over and over and over again through the Bible. How, anybody, how anyone can deny that God has promised the land uh, to Israel is beyond me. This replacement theology is thoroughly unscriptural. Over and over again, God promises the land. And probably in, the, in, the, in one sense, he swore upon his own life there in that covenant there in Matthew 14 that Abraham would receive the land. Well, Israel's back in the land. Came back in 1948 
were recognized officially, did they not? 1967, Jerusalem was captured. Another fulfillment of Bible prophecy. So Israel is in control of the land, all right? What were some of the other land? Uh, there were two other sub-covenants. Remember the seed, the gospel? Abraham would be, how was Abraham going to be a blessing to all nations, to everybody, Gentiles and Jews, through Jesus Christ? Remember there in, in Galatians chapter uh, 3, we see that that blessing was Christ, the promise of salvation to everybody. And then you had the Davidic covenant. All right, now this psalm today is dealing with the Davidic covenant. Do you remember what that was about, anybody? In, in part of that Abrahamic covenant, they called it the Davidic covenant. God made a promise to David. <laughs> what, did, what promise did God make to David? There in Samuel, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, I believe. 2 Samuel 7, and you see the Davidic covenant. God promised David what? that he would have seeds, also called the seed promise. Who was the seed that God promised would be on the throne during the millennium? Some, uh, some think it might have been Solomon, but we believe it was Christ. Didn't, Christ. didn't God promise David that his seed would be eternal, would be forever? So the Davidic covenant is God's promise to David that his seed, Jesus Christ, humanly speaking, was in the line of David, right? And so Christ will be on the throne during the millennium. David will probably be his co-regent. So probably Christ and David will sort of rule together during the millennium. And then, of course, we'll all, uh, we don't know where the Christians, we, we, we're not sure what, where the church is at this time. But anyhow, the Abrahamic covenant. Now come to Psalm 110. I said all that to say this, all right? Psalm 110 is a royal or a messianic covenant. Now, here we see the Davidic covenant, the promise to David that he would have a seed, namely Jesus Christ, would sit on the throne during the millennium. David's throne is eternal. Uh, David, uh, did David uh, fail the Lord? Humanly speaking, did David uh, deserve to lose that uh, wonderful promise? Sure did, didn't he? Committed adultery with a woman and to cover it up, he murdered her own husband in cold blood. That was a cold-blooded murder. And yet uh, David, uh, David, God says, I'll punish, I'll punish your seed for their sin, their disobedience, but God promised that throne for eternity. <laughs> By the way, I think another great proof you can't lose your salvation. When I got saved, I got eternal life. Now, my salvation is not conditioned. There's nothing I can do to make God love me more or make God love me less. My sin and failure does not cause God to love me less. <laughs> now, but my blessing is conditional, is it not? Not my salvation. It's never conditional. Once you're saved, you're saved. <laughs> That's why they call it eternal life. If I could get it and lose it and lose it again and get it back again several times, it's not eternal until I get to heaven, Right? No, God promised me eternal life. So I can fail the Lord and lose the blessing of God on my life, but I can't lose my salvation. What did David pray for, by the way, when in Psalm 51? Did he say, Lord, restore unto me my salvation? What did he pray for? <laughs> restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Didn't worry, he wasn't worried about losing his salvation. But you can lose the joy of the Lord. All right. Let's look at this. Look at Psalm 110. This is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. 
It's called a royal psalm or a messianic psalm. And all these messianic psalms now are against the background of the Davidic covenant. The promise to David that he would have an eternal seed on the throne. And that being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, a future to be fulfilled in the future, when the Lord Jesus Christ and David will sit on the throne on earth for a thousand years uh, through what we call the millennium. All right. Now look at this psalm. We, we talked before about how much did David know? How much do these Old Testament saints know about New Testament salvation? Do you remember uh, the woman at the well? She was a Samaritan. But uh, she said, uh, who would teach her all things when he came? <laughs> what did that woman at the well say? Obviously, pretty evidently had five husbands. The man she was living with at the time was not her husband. But uh, she, uh, she actually was, uh, knew a little bit of theology, didn't she? Who did she say would teach her all things when he came? The Messiah. <laughs> How about these Old Testament saints knew a lot more than what we, uh, what we think they did. And again, uh, look at this psalm. See, let's see how much David knows about Jesus Christ. It says, the Lord... Now, without getting into all the Hebrew, I don't know the Hebrew, but I'm just telling you what the commentators tell me, all right? They said that that word, did you see how it's in all capitals, L-O-R-D, in all caps? That means Yahweh. That means God. So David's making a reference now to God, the Father. He says, and the Lord, God, the Father, Yahweh, said unto my Lord, you see the L-O-R-D there? That word is in, uh, not all caps. So David said, God, Yahweh, God the Father, said to my Lord, my Savior. He didn't use the word Jesus Christ, but he's referring to the Messiah here. So D David knew there was a, a, a two or three different members in the Trinity, didn't he? To take not thy Holy Spirit from me. There in Psalm 51. So the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Here's an excellent little outline of Bible prophecy here. David is saying, now, God, my father, said to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, sit on my right hand. All right. We call this the session when Jesus Christ is in heaven, sitting at the right hand of the father. He's, they call that, the theologians call that the session of Christ means that he's sitting there on the right hand of God and, and praying for us. God is, in, Jesus Christ is sitting on the throne of heaven interceding for us, praying for us. Now, I don't understand all that, but I find, I think it's wonderful that I've got Christ, Christ praying for me, don't you? And uh, so, uh, and that, at, at the, when he goes to heaven, when he was on earth, lived among men, was abused and rejected by his own people, and uh, persecuted and uh, ridiculed and his life be often being threatened and, and went to Calvary and died. They call his earthly existence here his humiliation. When he left heaven's glory, came to earth uh, and uh, suffered the death, even the death of a slave, they call all that his humiliation. When he came out of the grave and was exalted and lifted up, ascended back to heaven, we call that his exaltation. And when he got to heaven, he sat down on the right hand of the Father and began to intercede for us and pray for us. But also when he got back to heaven, what's the, the important thing that he did? He sent, the, he sent his Holy Spirit. 
All right. So, uh, but you see all that now in this excellent little this little psalm, Psalm 110. So, uh, so he's sitting there at the right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now, the footstool means to bring them under sub, subjection, subjugation. Remember when Christ came back at the second coming, God the Father, Christ destroyed the armies of Antichrist. Did they not? It's making reference here to that, I believe. So when he came back, he destroys the armies of Antichrist gathered at, the, at Jerusalem and so on. It says, The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Now, I think this is moving on to the millennium now. Uh, in the millennium, the word of God says that Christ will rule with a rod of what? Rod of iron. Now, everybody, all those who entered the millennium were saved. Uh, all those, uh, those Old Testament saints that were resurrected during the tribulation, all those saints that were martyred during the tribulation, uh, they'll be resurrected at the end of the tribulation period, and all those will enter into the millennium. So everybody that in the millennium in the beginning will be safe people, will be regenerate. Now, during the millennium, uh, these uh, believers, they'll marry, be given in marriage, have children, but not all the children will come to know the Lord. Remember, what's going to happen at the end of the millennium? Remember the battle, another battle of Gog and Magog? At the end of the millennium, Satan will be loosed. And all those people who were secret rebels during the millennium will organize together and attempt to overthrow God <laughs> at the end of the millennium. Uh, can you imagine the, the depravity of the human heart? Men living in absolute perfection during the millennium under the direct reign of Christ and, and David will still be rebels against God. Never, never, never underestimate the depravity of the human heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? One of the phoniest uh, professions today is psychiatry. They profess to know the human heart. <laughs> no, they don't know the human heart. I don't know. Did, do you think David ever thought he would murder a man in cold blood? You, you don't know the human heart. <laughs> the human heart, man, man is basically evil. You know, the root of all of our social problems to, today is the idea that man's basically good. Well, let's give that serial rapist, let's just give him three months in jail. We know he's a pedophile and murdered children, abused children. But you know, if we uh, put him in jail for three months and give him some good psychotherapy, some good treatment, man's basically good. And so if you just love him and encourage him and, make him, and, and convince him that he's good, then he won't do bad things anymore. That's just what they call this restorative justice today. And, uh, but uh, no, man's depraved. Man's a sinner. Some, be, some people rejoice to do evil. Don't they? they love evil. <laughs> they love to hurt people. Man's a sinner. Man's depraved. Never, never underestimate the depravity of the human. What's going to happen during the tribulation when, they, when these people are, uh, they still cry out and rebel against God. And they'll cry out and want the rocks to fall on them. Because they hate God so much, you'd think they'd repent, wouldn't you? When you see the terrible judgment of God. But they're going to hate God even more. And, and they're trying to find death. No, the human heart's depraved. Man's basically evil. Just get you a, go, uh, get you a U.S. history book or a world history book. And on every, uh, almost every page, you see the violence and the bloodshed that, uh, and the evil things that men do to each other. Do you not? 
Man's a sinner. Man's depraved. But anyhow, look at verse 3. Thy people shall... So uh, the Lord, uh, the point is, during the millennium, Christ will be ruling among... There will be many enemies of Christ. But they'll keep it quiet. They'll be careful. It's just the opposite today. Uh, men uh, parade their defiance of God and their hatred of God publicly, did they not? But during the millennium, it'll be just the opposite. Christ himself will rule with a rod of iron, so rebels will keep it to themselves. Uh, you won't see uh, public uh, sin. The sin will probably be kept private and so on. It'll be a time of great law and order. I think it's a time when God wants to show us how this world can really be ruled. <laughs> That's what the millennium's about in one sense. But, be, but God will have many, many enemies during the, uh, from, from, from the children of these uh, saints that are born during the, during the millennium. All right. And uh, thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. Talking about the millennium, I believe, and the beauties of holiness. Outwardly, everything will be very moral, very holy during the millennium. From the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. They are to priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. In Roman, or in Hebrews uh, chapter 5 and 7, I believe it is, it talks about Melchizedek and uh, how Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. We don't know anything about his past, anything about his future. We just know that he was a king of Salem, but he was also a priest. He was a king and a priest. Uh, he mixed church and state together, <laughs> did he not? Uh, he mixed religion and, and uh, politics. He was a king and a priest. Well, Jesus Christ is a, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. David was in the tribe of Judah. David couldn't be a priest. Uh, he was a king. He was in the kingly line. But Jesus Christ will be both king and priest during the millennium. And all men will worship there at the uh, temple and so on. So Jesus Christ, this is a prophecy of Christ being a king and a priest during the millennium. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. At the end of that millennium, uh, some of these uh, political rulers and so on will turn against Christ. Christ will have to strike them. And with the breath of his coming, he'll destroy his enemies. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. And then at the end, we see the Lord being in a place of rest and victory and peace you shall drink of the brook in the way, therefore shall he lift up the head, and so on. There's a great outline of Bible history from the second coming all the way through the millennium. All right, now come over to another psalm. Come back to uh, Psalm 16. We're looking at just two important messianic psalms today. Just trying to, I, mean, I just want to look at a few important prophetic passages now before we get to the book of the Revelation in preparation for that that book. But Psalm 16 is another royal or messianic psalm. Come down to verse 8. Again now, this is the psalm of David. How do we know that David wrote Psalm 110 and Psalm 16? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ said that he did. And if Christ said that David wrote the psalm, then I believe David wrote the psalm, don't you? But look at uh, Psalm 16. Come down to verse 8. And then, again, David saying, I have set the Lord always before me, 
because he is my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth and my flesh also shall rest in hope. <laughs> what a beautiful picture of the peace of the believer. Amen. Now look at verse 10. David now begins to talk about Christ. Again, we're talking about how much did David know about the Messiah? It says, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. And now that word hell, comes. that word means grave. It doesn't mean the hell, the hell fire as we would know that today. But Jesus Christ was in the, in the grave. And God did not leave uh, Christ in the grave to be corrupted. He resurrected him, right, after three days. So David is making a reference here now to Jesus Christ, to the Messiah. And for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. He's making a reference to Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Thou wilt show me the, thou wilt show me the path of life. <laughs> you want to know what real living is? And what life with real purpose and joy and peace is all about is the Christian life. That's what David is saying here. That will show me the path of life, how to really live and enjoy this wonderful life. I came to give life and give it more abundantly, John 10, 10. Well, David's talking about the abundant life of the believer here. And thy presence is what? Fullness of joy. Thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. What a beautiful, what a wonderful sound that is. Now, come over to Acts chapter 2, and we see the interpretation of this. Peter will quote this, uh, Acts 16. In Acts chapter 2, come down to verse 14, Acts 2, 14. All right, the, uh, now the church, I believe, there's a great debate among this. If you disagree, that's fine. It's not a thing you should break fellowship over. But I believe the, uh, the church was organized in the days of Christ and the Apostles. Uh, your old classic dispensationalists say that Christ, the church began on the day of Pentecost. If you believe that, that's fine. Uh, I was reared on the old uh, the, the Schofield Reference Bible all my life. I believed that until I, I think, till I studied it for myself. <laughs> and I believe that the church was empowered on the day of Pentecost. But I believe that it was organized uh, uh, structurally before Pentecost. You remember when Christ was talking about church discipline? There in Matthew 15, what did he say? If, uh, you know, uh, brothers are offended against each other, then you bring them before two or three witnesses. Then if uh, you don't get satisfaction with two or three witnesses, then what do you do? Where, where do you bring these people in matters of church discipline? There in Matthew 18, if you go one-on-one -on -one first, if you've, got, uh, if you've got an offense against somebody, say somebody has done you wrong, there in Matthew 18, uh, should you go to them or do you wait for them to come to you? Uh, there is a sense, you go to them. You ought to meet each other on the way. Isn't that what the Word of God says there? It says you come to the altar and you offer your gift at the altar and then there you kneel and you begin to pray and realize you've got something against somebody. Does it say go ahead and offer your gift and get your spiritual business done then go make it right or what does he say there? You immediately, you leave that gift there at the altar and you go make things right with people. And the word of God does, doesn't matter if you offend somebody or somebody's offended you. You both have the obligation to take the initiative and go make things right with somebody. You ought to meet each other on the way to be reconciled. 
Don't say, oh, well, he did me wrong. I, I'm going to wait for him. No, you're not supposed to wait for him. You go and you make that right. And you come in the right spirit. Brother, you offended me, and uh, this, uh, we need to make this thing right. We need to get, be reconciled. But then you, if that doesn't work, then you bring two or three witnesses. And then if that doesn't work, you bring them before the church. Now, how could you, did the Lord say, now wait till the day of Pentecost before you bring them before the church? What did he say? <laughs> Did they have, by the way, did they have a baptism in the Lord's Supper before the, the two ordinances of the local church? Did they have that before Pentecost or not? <laughs> I believe they did. I believe they did. What, what, that, remember that last night when he went out before he was crucified? Didn't they observe the supper there? By the way, the Word of God says there in Hebrews that he sang a song in the church. Did you know Jesus Christ sang a song in the church? They sang a hymn that night before they went out, didn't they? I believe the church was organized before Pentecost. Now, if you think it was Pentecost, that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. It's America. It's a free country. Now, you can believe what you want to believe. All right? But <clears throat> anyhow, so uh, I didn't mean to get into all that, but I just was saying I believe the church started before the day of Pentecost. That's all. All right, two, then come down to verse 14. But Peter, this is the first event now in the history of the church, in one sense, after the day of Pentecost. Peter preaches the first sermon. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be ye known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken. They were, they were spirit-filled. They were full of joy. And some accuse them, no doubt, of drinking. Well, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, most people don't drink that early in the morning, right? Uh, I understand. I don't know. I'm just telling you what people tell me. I don't know firsthand about these things. For these are not drunken, as you suppose, saying it is but the third hour of the day. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Remember Ezekiel 36, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32 prophesied the coming of the Holy Spirit when men will be permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so Peter is saying, what you're seeing now is a part of that prophecy of Joel. Joel promised the coming of the Holy Spirit. But now not the whole prophecy, just part of it was fulfilled. You have an example of that in several places in the scripture where some of the, some of the prophecy is fulfilled, but not the whole thing. They call that double fulfillment. Prophecy is uh, sometimes installed in two parts. The whole part is not the whole prophecy is not always given at one time. And that's the case here. Now look at this prophecy, and it shall come to pass. This is Joel, and he's quoting Joel chapter two, verses twenty-eight through thirty-two. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit, the Holy Spirit, upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. I believe a lot of this took place in the upper room there in chapter 1 of Acts. And on, on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood, fire, and vaporous smoke. Now, this, this second part of this prophecy is not fulfilled here. The moon didn't turn into blood and so on. None of those things were fulfilled here on the day of Pentecost, but the Holy, that Holy Spirit part, the spiritual blessings of the, of the, of the prophecy was fulfilled, but not the, these, uh, this uh, physical phenomena. You know, the turn, moon turning his blood and, and so on. 
the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord. That great and notable day now will be the second coming of Christ. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That word, that word whosoever, by the way, in the Greek means whosoever. It means everybody can get saved if they put their trust in Jesus. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. These people saw all those wonderful works of Christ when he walked here on the earth, did they not? Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified slain. The Holy Spirit gave Peter some uh, courage and some backbone, didn't it? You remember how the big coward uh, quaver, uh, was uh, humiliated and embarrassed by that little old teenage girl there at the fire? Uh, yet now we see a Holy Spirit-filled Peter, a man of great boldness. And, the, and here he begins and looks at these people and says, You crucified him, <laughs> you wicked people. Hope very, very, the, the Holy Spirit made him a, a bold preacher, did it not? Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. Now look at this. Christ, uh, um, Peter rather, Verse 25, for David speaketh concerning him. He's quoting Psalm 16 now that we just read a minute ago. For David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. David was certain of his salvation, that God was not going to leave him in the grave. David knew that uh, at, the end of that old, at, the, at the end of the tribulation period, he would be resurrected along with Daniel and other Old Testament saints. But then he wouldn't leave Christ in hell. David foresaw the resurrection of Christ and knew that Christ would not be left in the grave. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak. Uh, unto you of the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with you unto this day. They're in the, near the Temple Mount. And so we know that David wasn't resurrected yet bodily. That's what uh, Peter's saying here. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God hath sworn and with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. David is reminding them, or Peter's reminding them now of the the Vedic covenant, the promise to David that he would have the seed, would have Christ on the throne during the millennium. He's saying this before he spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see his corruption. So Peter now is telling us what David meant, what David explained about the resurrection. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, now he begins to quote what Psalm? Psalm 110, right? We just read a few minutes ago. Until I, uh, he, uh, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thine foes thy footstool. 
Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord, God, and Christ. The great affirmation of the deity of Christ, of course. And then when they heard this now, they said, man, what should we do? And many got saved that day. All right, what a wonderful, wonderful prophecy. Let's all bow our heads and we'll, we'll be dismissed. Our Father God, we're thankful for the wonderful truth of your word and we're thankful, Father God, for the wonderful assurance that you give us of our salvation and, and of your soon return. Now, Father God, bless the word today as it's preached and we pray, Father, thy spirit might move on that soul today that's near as hell. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.